Our passage this morning is the chapter of Deuteronomy 23. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Baor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian, because you were a sojourner in his land. Children born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of the Lord. When you are encamped against your enemies, then you shall keep yourself from every evil thing. If any man among you becomes unclean because of a nocturnal omission, then he shall go outside the camp. He shall not come inside the camp, but when evening comes, he shall bathe himself in water, and as the sun sets, he may come inside the camp. You shall have a place outside the camp, and you shall go to it, and you shall have a trowel with your tools, and when you sit down outside, you shall dig a hole with it and turn back and cover up your excrement. Because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him. You shall not wrong him. None of the daughters of Israel shall be, cult, shall be a cult prostitute, and none of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. You shall not bring the fee of a prostitute or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God in payment for any vow, for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest, that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what is past your lips. For you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. That concludes the passage. From our creator. I want to pose a question for us this morning as we dig into this, this passage together. Have you ever considered 
all the different types of words that we use to describe the Christian life, of like the, the newness of life that we have as a Christian. If someone said, hey, you're a Christian, what does that mean? What, like what's, this, this was before Christ and now this is after. Have you ever thought about the words that we use, such as holiness or uh, new birth or righteousness? There's all kinds of words that we can use, and I think all of those words are really good. And they all have their intended purpose and function. One such word, let's use holiness for an example. What, it, what, what is the meaning of holiness as it relates to uh, the Christian life? You, you could take that to mean that God is holy, that He's other, that He's set apart, that He's wholly different. You could talk about our lives, the Christian life, that we are to be holy and set apart, undefiled and set apart for a particular purpose. Maybe the word righteousness. That word communicates right and wrong. God is righteous. He always does what is right. We are to live righteous lives. There's good and there's bad. There's right and there's wrong. There's a line in the sand, and we are called to live righteously. I want to set another word before us, purity. And I think the text in front of us is speaking to purity. If I said, let's say, hypothetical situation, this would be really weird if, you're, if I came to you while you're working out in the lawn, but you're working out in the lawn, and you've been working out for, for hours, and it's a hot day. Not like today, it's a hot day. Hours and hours you've been working, and I have a bottle of purified water. Would you, would you go, oh, Caleb, you're so holier than thou. That is purified water. Oh, why couldn't you just get me regular water? You would, you would never think like that. Purified water is excellent. It's good. It's been removed of all defilement, and it's for your betterment. It's, it's, it's good water. It's not, it's not bad water. It's, it's beneficial to you. It's been purified, and it has ongoing effects of that for your betterment. Let's say that, uh, let's say you're on an antique roadshow, and you bring your granddad's gold watch. You know, how much is this worth? And the appraiser looks at it and says, I've got good news for you. It's pure gold. Aside, you know, not wanting a 24-karat gold watch, that'd be a pain in the butt because it would dent. Uh, but just imagine the value that that communicates. You wouldn't go, oh, a pure gold watch? Like how, like you looking down your nose, uh, you, you, would, you would think that's a good thing. The valuation of this watch is excellent. And it's not only excellent, it benefits me. My value goes up by, because of purity. If I was to tell you that yesterday I went to the park with my family, and then afterwards we got ice cream, and I described it as Pure joy. Is that negative or is that positive? It communicates the wholeness of that experience. Undefiled of anything that could have gone bad. I guess you could focus on the things that could have gone bad and how it was avoided. But the word pure communicates all that went well. How awesome it was. How, how the time was good and beneficial. It was excellent. Think about one of our, um, in our culture, uh, 
women in the congregation who are married. When you got married, you wore a pure white dress, most likely. A white dress communicates purity. When I saw Christy, my wife, walk down the aisle in a white dress, did I go, oh, you're so, you're so condescending. You're so holier than thou. It communicates beauty. She was stunning. She, was, she had reserved herself for me. There was a visual picture that she was mine and that I was going to be hers. It was that the negative wasn't the point. The point wasn't, well, I guess it could have other colors. The point was, was that it was, there was value. It communicated value and it was to my betterment to see my wife in white. So church, when, when God looks at us, when Christ, who is the bridegroom, sees the bride, he sees a pure people. Not condescending, looking down their nose, holier than thou, look at me, I'm hot stuff. See somebody that has neglected all other suitors for Jesus. That is what God sees in his church. You are a people set apart. You are a holy people. You are called to righteousness. But again, I think purity has a great, a great meaning to it because it, it's the focus is on the value and the benefit of holiness. And this morning, I want to draw our eyes to the beauty and to the goodness the gospel testifies to the church, to the assembled people of God, to us being pure. Purity, as it relates to us this morning, is that gracious and blessed state of being undefiled by sin in our worship of God. The focus isn't on check boxes. Again, purity, pure joy. Purity, as it relates to your wedding day. Those, that's the images that you should be getting when you hear this word. When you hear the purity of the church, this isn't a holy club. We love holiness, but because of all the good things that that, that word does for us. As Christians, and as the gathered people of God for the integrity of our relationship with God and our witness to a watching world, our purity matters. Because of our relationship and our representation, our purity matters. Why do we as a church take membership so seriously? Why do we courageously practice church discipline as commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ? Because the beauty of the church is her purity. That is one of the points I want to make very clear today. The purity of Kingsway Community Church reflects, reflects our relationship and our mission given by the gospel. So the point of today's sermon is this. This is the point I hope to take away from this crazy chapter in Deuteronomy. The people of God, the people of God, so you could put the church of Jesus Christ here, Kingsway Community Church, strives for purity in all of life because of their relationship with and representation of God to a watching world. That's the point. 
The people of God strive for purity in all of life because of their relationship with and representation of God to a watching world. So the three points that I want to draw out for us this morning, if you can tell, if you look, if you were to look in a physical Bible or maybe your, your, um, your phone, you should see there's three larger sections. That's, and that's how I'm going to try to tackle this. We're going we're gonna to wrestle this bear in three sections, all right? And so three points, three points. First, I want us to, to guard um, and, and, and deal with God's love and presence creates a pure people. And we see that from verse 5 and 14. We see that, second, the purity of the church. And then third, purity in all of life. So God's love and presence create a pure people, the purity of the church, and purity in all of life. So the passage, three sections. There's the first section that relates to those that are coming to worship God in the assembly. The second section talks about purity as it relates to when Israel's not gathered for worship, specifically uh, when you go to war, and then when you're not in Jerusalem. And then the third section is what you might call miscellaneous laws, or that might be what the ESV subtitle says. But these are very practical ways of outworking the, the principles of purity with our neighbors, and when we're not gathered together corporately, in the nitty-gritty of life on life together. So let's look first, the first point. God's love and presence creates purity. So when you look at this passage, and you see how Israel is supposed to be distinct and separate from the world, and how we're to worship, and when, they, when, when we're supposed to uh, live in relation to one another, whether, whether it be a uh, corporate witness or in our individual witness, the question is raised from this topic. Why does purity matter? Maybe some of you guys are asking that question. Why does purity matter? Like, why, what? Jesus died for my sins. I'm, I'm, don't, don't you see me, Caleb? I'm dressed in the robes of the righteousness of Jesus Christ right now. What more do I need to do? I hope many of you are asking that. Why does it matter to be separate from the world? undefiled by sin? Why does it matter that we fight as a church, as a body, not just individuals, but as a body against sin to maintain purity? Here's the question that we need to address first off before we get here, and this is where so many can get tripped and where we can veer off from the gospel entirely. Are we pure because we must be pure to be saved. In order for me to become a Christian, in order for me to stay in the good graces of our Heavenly Father, must we be pure? Which comes first, salvation or purity, the chicken or the egg? In the 1700s, this was a live category for Christians specifically in New England. Um, there were three large groups that, that had very thoughts on this very issue. You had the Church of England, and for them, salvation was moralism. Be a good person. And so, if you want to be saved, yeah, be pure. That's, that's how you will become saved. And, and not much will change on the front end and the back end other than a declaration by a church authority that you are saved. That was one group. And there was another group that would believe in what we would call big God theology, that, that God is sovereign and that He saves us to good works. And we love good works. 
on this side of salvation. But when it comes to before we're saved, well, we love good works over here, so what does it hurt if we had a couple on the front end before we get saved? Maybe it's not, it's not that they like really save you, but out of the other side of their mouth, you would find that they would want to prepare you for salvation. You need, I hear, it's faith, it's by grace through faith alone, not of your own doing, but you really should be making sure that you're going to church and that you are obeying the Ten Commandments, and then you can receive the gospel, and then, of course, there'll be good works, because we love, we love purity. There was another group that believed that salvation was according to your will, that, that you choose God, that God is somewhat sovereign, just not in matters of salvation, and that you get to choose. And so, if it's up to you to choose, virtue and purity means that you, you, that, that helps you. That, that helps your facilities understand what's going on with salvation. So, if you were a good person, you'd be more inclined to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. All three of these are horribly false. The gospel is truly by grace and faith alone and no works you can look like a sinner when you come to the cross because that is what you are. And when Christ changes your life, He clothes you in His righteousness. What He did on the cross covers you. And God doesn't stop there. He gives you His Spirit so that, as what we would say in John 3, that you might be born again. And that's what George Whitfield, his most famous sermon that he preached over 6,000 times. Can you imagine preaching a sermon, one, the same sermon 6,000 times, and everybody goes, man, that's awesome, do it again. <laughs> Not me. Get some, new, get some new material. But that was George Whitfield's, that, that's what he was speaking to. Out of all these groups, what, what, what must I do to be saved? Be a good person. Try a little harder. Fix your life up. Jesus wants to see that. And over 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 again, the good news of the gospel, ye must be born again. That is the substance of the gospel message. Faith and repentance is the gospel call to those who do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It is not faith and repentance and a good life. That is not at all what I'm saying. When I say the church is to be pure, those that call on the name of the Lord, those that are members of Kingsway Community Church that have turned from sin and now live in the Spirit, this is the group that we're called to be. This is purity. This is where it is. Not on the front end, this isn't a charade. This isn't a 30-second commercial of try to, try to look like you have your stuff together. <laughs> it's not that at all. Romans 5.1, Paul says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I might be missing it, but I don't see anything in this verse that describes our right standing being uh, based off of the prerequisite of anything other than faith. It's not by works of the law we're trying to remove that defilement of sin by our own hands that makes us beautiful to God, that makes us an object to be desired by God. We bring nothing to the table, friend. The only reason why God would desire us is because of His unmerited love towards us. 
The only reason why we stand justified before a holy God is because of the perfect, substitutionary, finished work of Jesus Christ. And so when we read Deuteronomy 23, and we see all these rules and descriptions of how the people of God are to be separate and distinct and pure from the world, don't you dare think that this is that Israel would be rewarded with salvation if they would just do this. It is grounded on God's love and salvation already present in the assembly. Moses is calling our lives to attention. He's helping us guard what we have already been awarded in our salvation. God has called you out, Kingsway, so that the world would know unequivocally where Jesus Christ is, where the gospel is clear focused. Looks different when you get married. When I married Christy, she belonged to me and I belonged to her. There's a purity in my relationship with my wife. There's a symbol of it. The watching world can see I am a married man. The bride of Christ has a symbol that shows to a watching world, I belong to God and He belongs to me. And no one else, just me and him. And that beauty isn't diversity or programs or niche social justice causes. It is her purity. If I could give us a reason today to pursue purity, specifically as the body of Christ, it's two reasons. Purity, like a marriage, is present because of that relationship. I love my wife. And so I'm not looking at anybody else. That's, that is an aspect of that relationship. So there's one. We pursue purity because of our relationship with God in Christ. And then second, purity for the sake of representation. Like a marriage, my ring gives clear and an unfiltered picture to anyone who looks at me that I am married. So for us as the church, where does the watching world see the purest form and the purest picture of Jesus Christ and the gospel? How do we go on mission, Kingsway? Here's... Very practical application. How do we go on mission? Do, do we have to get together, create a committee, go on a mission trip and so on? I want to encourage you that one of the most profound ways that you can go on mission right now is to live purely for the sake of God and Christ. That you love Jesus Christ above all else. That is missional community. Very simply put. So we care about the purity of our body, the church. We take fidelity to God and the forsaking of sin seriously because it speaks to the worth and the goodness of Jesus Christ and the gospel that we proclaim as the church. Not out of our need to be loved by God or so that his presence would be with us, but because those two promises are already here. And I think we see that in this text, specifically verse 5 and verse 14. So, so look with me. In this first section about the assembly, Moses gives a grounding for why he didn't let Balaam curse Israel. I don't know if you guys caught that. There's two, there's two grounding reasons for, for action in this text that are related specifically to God, and it's, it's love and presence. And we see that first one here in verse 5. Why, 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 why weren't they cursed? Why was Israel not cursed by Balaam very fascinating. If you have not read that passage in Numbers and you're looking for an entertaining soap opera story as far as Scripture goes, this is it. This guy, several times, this, he, 
man, like I want an animal like that donkey. That donkey loved Balaam and would not let an angel hurt him. And um, that's not the point of this sermon. Um, so <laughs> just turn with me. Yeah, that might be a, a, an easier passage to cut. Um, but Balaam tried to curse Israel, and God wouldn't because he loved you, because the Lord your God loved you. God's steadfast love was already with his people, and purity, this call to the assembly, was in response to that. Look at verse 14. So verse 14, this is when they're outside of the camp, when you're in war. Why should you care about what you're doing? We're nowhere even near Jerusalem. This is where the boys are here to play. We got our swords and our shields, and I don't see any Levitical priests. It's just us. It matters what you do outside the camp. Why? Verse 14, because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp. God is everywhere, and he's with his people, not just in Jerusalem. He's with you when you're, when you're on vacation, when you're at home. When, when we leave Kingsway here and we go get a bucket of fried chicken and head home, take a nap, go to work tomorrow, God is with you. He is with you. And it matters. Your holiness, it's not, again, a commercial of, all right, you know, I'm going to wear a blazer today. I'm going to make sure that, that, that I have my nice Bible open and I, I ask three people for prayer and I pray for four people. And there we go. Checkbox. I have lived purely. Commercial done. I'm going to go home, live my life. That is not the Christian life and that is not what is being prescribed even in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 23. Loving God is an all-of-life matter. Being in love with God and the gospel, having the gospel change your life is an every-moment thing. Again, just like a marriage. I'm not in love with Christy one moment and then schizophrenically changing my mind and living my own life in the next. She has all of my life for all of life. And the same is true for the bride of Christ. And Jesus, we love him in all corners of our house. So let's dive into, that being said, all the prerequisites that the gospel is founded first on God's love, that purity is not a prerequisite, but that it's a reward, it's a response to the love of God and presence of God. Let's move to point two. So purity in the church, verses 1 through 8, and then verse 17 and 18. So let's look at the first eight verses in chapter 23, as maybe some of you guys are already looking. Maybe you've noticed a repeated phrase within these eight verses. Six times. Six times something is repeated. What is it? When you read, when you read a passage of Scripture and you see something repeated, it's showing emphasis. And that phrase is, enter the assembly of the Lord. Enter the assembly of the Lord. Six times Moses gives reference to persons or groups that are prohibited or allowed to enter the assembly of the Lord. The assembly of the Lord, we need to understand this, the assembly of the Lord is a reference to the covenant people of God who are in covenant relationship with God who are gathering to hear the voice of God and worship. So this isn't speaking about everyone within the national borders of Israel or the national identity of Israel per se. Moses is getting more specific, speaking to the purity of God's people in times of worship. 
those within the national borders who are in covenant relationship with the Lord and gathering for worship to hear the Lord. That's the group. That's what the assembly of the Lord is. This is worship. So like for us, the Sunday moment right now, we're talking about this time, if I can draw the connection to the New Testament. So this isn't talking about everybody kick people out of the nation um, per se. This is talking about worship. And what's important to keep in mind as we look at these eight verses and we try to make biblical correlations between what we're reading in the Old Testament and the reality of the church in the New Testament is first and foremost, maybe this is a sigh of relief, there's a difference. There is a difference, all right? So one, one way, might be a little bit lazy way of explaining the difference is to say that God has changed his mind, of course. That, that where he was, um, some, th- this text could be accused of xenophobia or of, um, of discrimination. And so God has moved on. And we see the height of revelation being found in Jesus Christ. I, I don't think that's true. I think understanding that this is speaking to Israel as a theocratic national religion and the church, like when, when you were an Israelite, the Ten Commandments, that was the laws of Torah were the laws of the citizen. And for me, the, the, for the New Testament church, the American Constitution or the Bill of Rights, that's not my Ten Commandments. We're, we are visitors, sojourners in America. We are, a, um, in one sense, a, a parasite on culture. Um, we're not the majority culture, nor will we be, nor do we want to be because we have such a better kingdom that we are a part of called the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. And so when we read this and we see what a nation did in the Old Testament, it would, it, it would behoove us to not go, this is one-to-one, and, and try to apply this. For the Old Testament, there were tangible, physical, political realities. It's a lot of descriptions. All I'm saying is that the Old Testament was different than today. It's different than the church. We, we care about the physical in, in one sense, that our hearts will, will show itself in the way that my hands move, the way that my mouth speaks, the way that my ears listen and my feet go. But there's not a, a hardline physical difference in externals that we see in the Old Testament. But here's the thing that is the same, the principle of purity is the same. Our God doesn't change to answer that question. He's not in process. There's two different, a political, theocratic religion, and the church, which is part of a spiritual kingdom. Our God is the same. and He cares about a pure people. He cares about a pure people. So one of the most helpful ways for us to understand these groups that are being prohibited and, and, and what Moses is trying to intend, think with me about where we've been in Deuteronomy. Think about a couple chapters ago. What were we talking about a couple chapters ago? We were talking about sacrifices. What was important about sacrifices? That they were pure. That when you, when you, when you brought your animal or your grain or your olives and all of that, that you gave me your first and that you gave me your best. That's what God was asking. And so we see the sacrifices being important. And now Moses is getting close to home. Moses is now saying, not only are your sacrifices important, you yourself, as a person, are important to this. Worship not only involves the actions, the tactile things that we bring, you yourself are part of worship. And so he spends a lot of time in these verses talking about how important it is, and thus that kind of helps us understand 
the groups that are being described here. Christ, God, is wanting His church to be pure, His assembly to be pure in persons, all right? And there are a lot of questions that we have about this text. I know that I have wrestled like five gorillas in this text, and I come away with a couple answers, and of course you'll walk away with a couple questions. But I'm going to tell you the best way we're all going to make it through, and the way that we make it through is understanding the larger the larger point of the passage, all right? So the first group that Moses prohibits from the assembly are eunuchs. This one's probably one of the more easy groups to deal with in this text. In the promised land, it was not uncommon, it was not an uncommon practice of worship. And I'm going to use some words here. Uncommon practice of holiness and of purity to a Canaanite god that men would act in worship by removing their genitals, that they would sacrifice one of the most important parts of their bodies to a pagan deity. What this is speaking to, Canaan in the Promised Land was a very religious culture. In a post-spiritual America, this is kind of hard to think about, but back then, everybody had a God. And so a eunuch, in many ways, had a spiritual purpose. And this is the point. This person has dedicated their body and their, their, their spirit, their soul, to another god, to idolatry, all right? And in America, it's also tough in, our, in a Western culture, it's very tough for us to understand. If, I, if, I, if I'm in a contract, I sign the line, I agree to it, and, 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 and hypothetically, I should live through the, the length of that contract. In America, if you want to get out of a contract, you can get out of a contract, you can hire a lawyer. You can call customer service. You can, I want to speak to your manager. Can you solve my problem today? And you can get out of it. When, when you dedicated your life to another God, in a sense, it's not, as like, it's not like flipping a switch. And so this was a person that represented a whole life, whole body devotion to another God. Do you understand how that person is not allowed in the, the person that wants to worship Yahweh? person that wants to hear Yahweh speak is someone that doesn't even worship Yahweh, that our body is to be pure. That's the point of, of the first group. The next group that Moses prohibits from entering in the assembly are illegitimate children. These would be children out of wedlock or through incestuous relationship. And Moses doesn't give reason as to why they're not allowed in the assembly. But again, looking at the larger picture We can speak to what the text says. This verse helps us understand the larger meaning of the passage by highlighting that God's people in their relationship with God and in their representation of God to the world ought to be undefiled just like the sacrifice and the sacrifices. The third group that Moses prohibits are the Ammonites and the Moabites. And we know a very famous Moabitess in Ruth and clearly an exception and part of the lineage of Christ um, but these groups are, are, come from both the descendants of Lot's daughters in Genesis, the, the two daughters that slept with Lot and had children as a product of that incestuous relationship. But Moses doesn't mention that in this passage, but he does give grounds to why they're not allowed, and it's important. So we know from the first group of eunuchs that it is people that have devoted their lives to another deity. What about the Moabites and the Ammonites? Why aren't they allowed? Say that five times fast. Ammonites and Moabites. 
The Ammonites refused. This is the reasoning. They refused to give bread and water to Israel in the wilderness. We, we read that many moons ago in Deuteronomy chapter 2. They, that, that, Mo, that Moses was leading the people and needed passage, needed food and water, and they refused to do it. And then the Moabites were prevented from the assembly because of Balaam, because they tried to curse them. For these two groups, this is the reason why they're prohibited, because they stand against God's redemptive purposes. They stand against God's redemptive plan to save a people. They were trying to ruin them, to get rid of them, to curse them, to obstruct the will of God. And so what Moses is getting at is that those that have given their lives to him have forsaken all others for him. They haven't given themselves to other God. They don't live lives that are characteristically defined by sin. They're not against the redemptive mission of God. God's people are to be pure because that is a result and a reward of the salvation that we get. And the problem with the Moabites and the Ammonites was not that they were Moabites and they were Ammonites in an ethnic sense. The problem is that they were opposed to the redemptive mission of God. And if you read this text, and if you read this text, and you thought this was an application of racism, brothers and sisters, that that the, the distinguishing mark of the Moabites and the Ammonites was their ethnicity, you are profoundly influenced by the culture of today. The largest distinction in the Bible is concerned with those that belong to God and those that do not. And you will find people from every tribe, tongue, and nation in both categories. In both categories. Case in point, look at the next group. Edomites and Egyptians, and they're encouraged. Notice the tone of Moses here. Prohibited, prohibited, prohibited. Don't abhor Edomites. They're your brothers. Related, back all the way to Esau. The Egyptian, out of all the enemies of God, I don't know if you guys caught this. If you read this for like, like the first time, no Bible knowledge, you would just think that like Israel went on a vacation in Egypt. It's like, oh, hey, be nice to them. Remember, they hosted you. It was a great Airbnb. Awesome. Hey, make sure to return the favor. Be hospitable. That's not at all what this, when you think about the grace that Moses has, the mission, the missional heart, what Matthew said in relation to what Sean was sharing today, those that have been forgiven much, forgive. You, that is that text. That is the meaning of that text. For the Egyptians, they were enemy number one. Enemy number one, by far. And they are encouraged after the third generation, so those that weren't actively against the redemptive mission of God, they're allowed and welcome to come. How often do we treat our enemies like that Egyptian? That we would say, in like, true things happened, hurtful things happened in Egypt. Horrible things happened. And Moses, in kindness and grace, describes that situation as he does. Don't read it too much. It'll be convicting. (laughs) Thank you, Quinn. (laughs) As we see with the Edomites and the Egyptians in this passage, being pure does not harm the mission of the church. Purity informs and aids the mission of the church. 
We are called to care out of our fidelity to God, what our assembly and how our assembly lives. But then also look at the care and the grace of Moses' pastor here. Make sure, guard your hearts, don't abhor those that do not know me. This is not Moses going, don't let anybody that doesn't say Christ is king into the, the assembly. What he's saying, those that are enemies, wolves in sheep clothing, that would the New Testament connection, those, those that would say, I'm part of Christ, but your life is showing none of it. That we, we, have, we have questions about that. For those that, that are wanting to see the hope found in Jesus Christ, you are welcome. And don't you dare push them away, is what Moses informs us here. So what makes Kingsway attractive? It's not our building. It's not long, how long our church has been around. It's not about how educated um, we might be or how many mission trips we've been on or diversity quotas or, again, social justice causes, how many evangelism tracts we put on people's cars, political parties we're associated with, or political parties that we want to make sure that we're not associated with. What Christ cares about is our pure joy and delight in the exclusive treasuring of Him above all else. And that looks like something. It has to look like something. It looks like forsaking sin and pursuing holiness. Look with me at Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. This is what Paul says, in light of everything that Jesus has done for you. In light of everything that Jesus has done for you. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, in view of the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do you see the beauty in that? Do you see the call of that? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Just like Moses moves from purity of animals that are being sacrificed to persons, brothers and sisters. I love that we have holy actions and that we do things, but the Lord cares about you as the sacrifice just as much as your actions within the Christian life. And so having looked at the reasons for our purity and the beauty of God's people being its purity, what about when we're not gathered? Real quickly, we're looking at point three, purity in all of life. The next two sections of this passage speak to purity and holiness as it relates to other situations when you're not gathered together for worship. And so, the rules, there's still rules that apply for us, even when when you leave. Again, Christianity is an all-of-life, everyday kind of thing. And this text shows that the salvation that God gives us, excuse me, for all of our sin, and the new life that He gives us for all of our lives is meant to permeate every square inch of our life. So when you're in community group and someone asks you a question that you're offended at of, of, an, of something that you did privately, don't get offended. They, they're loving you. They're asking about what you're treasuring. The gospel has a claim even there. This passage speaks to several things. It talks about war. It talks to human right issues. It speaks about parenting. It speaks about how you're deal, to deal with money and your business dealings. 
talking about keeping your word, caring for the needy and the poor. In the ancient Near East, if you had a slave come to you, you were to beat them and give them back to the master. Not so in this text. You're to care for them. That, 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 that even how you act in, in, in something that happens on your land, that speaks, that represents your relationship and it represents the gospel, even there. Right now, we're represent, we, we, we are representing our relationship and the mission of God being gathered together. But even when you go and you go to work, when you hang out with your family, when you discipline your child at nap time, when, when you are arguing with a neighbor, you are representing your relationship and mission with God in how you act. So it, it, here, here's another extreme example in this text. If your children are wanting to worship another god, and this text uses the extreme example of uh, occult prostitution, you're to keep your household pure. That, that, that it matters, even in parenting, that it matters. It's a parent, parental responsibility to love them and to be missional. If you give money, to be especially sure that you don't take advantage, that you're pure in your motives and you're not selfish. When you make a promise to somebody, your words are pure. You have integrity. You can be counted on. All the outworkings of purity. All of these represent practical life-on-life categories. In the last two verses, I think for every young guy in this room, this is probably your unintentional life verse whenever you go over to someone else's house. Hey, you want a, you want a snack? Yeah, man. And they just raid your pantry. When someone goes into your vineyard, let them eat as much as they want. All the young guys are, amen, amen. <laughs> if this, is, this should not be your life verse. Don't stop doing that. <laughs> in love, praying for you. These verses are speaking to the poor and needy, to persons that, literally don't have, a, they don't know their next meal, that they come in and that you would be generous, that you would show just, just like that touching story about Nehemiah. God has forgiven us much. Forgive others. Show love to others. Because church, every one of us came into God's vineyard with much need. Much need. And God generously gave everything we needed and continues to give everything we need in Jesus Christ. When we are transformed by the gospel and we see God's pure love and affection for us, when we are more aware of his presence and care for us, brothers and sisters, just like a wedding, we want to show it off. I talk about my wife because I love her. The church should talk about Jesus because we're obsessed with the gospel. And it's missional. The watching world will see and go, I want that. I want that. So brothers and sisters, the beauty of Kingsway is our purity. By grace and grace alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how you have lavishly given us your love in Jesus. How you have made a way for us through Jesus Christ. And how you have brought a people together, a holy community that loves you because of the worth and value of you and you alone. 
our greatest act of humility is to live holy for you, to recognize that we need you and not other pursuits. Lord, that, that our purity speaks to our love for you. And Lord, I pray that you would help us as a body in the mission that you've given us to proclaim Christ to those who are far off and to those who are near. We thank you for your spirit. Lord, would you even now, even now, Lord, would you please call those who are outside of our assembly. Move in their hearts, Lord. Call back. It's in Jesus' name that we pray all these wonderful things. Amen.